Hello friends, happy summer. I uh, hope it's going well for you. My name is John Patty. Welcome back to Music in Our World. I'd like to uh, bring for you now episode 9. It's my, uh, one of my close friends and uh, sort of a business partner now, if you will. Um, a colleague of mine named Robert Lewis. I met, uh, I met Robert when I, was, when I was a teacher for a few years and we taught in the same district. Um, you know, played played in a, a little band, band together. Sometimes it was it was a lot of fun. But he and I, uh, you know, we've worked together on a few musicals now, and we talk all the time about musicals and theater and uh, you know, education, pedagogy, all sorts of really interesting, uh, in my opinion, interesting musical topics. So it just kind of makes sense to have him on. And the more that we talk, and the more work we do together, I think it's it's. Um, He's, he's going to be somebody that we'll have on probably more than once, uh, maybe with a little bit of consistency. The idea here with the podcast uh, in the current format is that it's going to maintain a pretty simple approach. So if it, if it makes sense to have Robert on a whole bunch, I think that's, that's probably what we're just going to do. Um, you know, maybe even as a co-host kind of thing. Um, but t- today he and I, uh, we talked a little bit about theater and where it's going and what, what about the arts in general, uh, and then also a little bit about our newest endeavor, the, uh, the, the Woodlands Chamber Music Project. So um, I could talk about that for a really, really, really long time, so to, uh, to save you that stress, I will just, um, I'll let you kind of listen to the podcast, and then if you have any questions about, um, you know, about, you know, what we talked about or specifically about the Chamber Music Group, just shoot us a message. Um, we're definitely trying to expand that right now. Um, so it's, uh, it'd be great to have, to have all of you involved for sure. Uh, just right up here at the top also, I want to uh, let you guys know that I'm booked with uh, Zero Detail a few shows this summer. Um, I'll put those up. Those are on my bands in town. If you click on the events page on the website, you'll be able to see that there. Um, we're going to play, uh, play Darwin's again. They're a damn good Music Friday event. Um, it's a really cool, really cool spot. Uh, we're going to play Super Happy Funland, I think twice. And uh, like the Firehouse Saloon. Big, bigger, uh, bigger venues. Some of those do have tickets, though. So if you, if you check out a show and want to go, uh, just let me know. And I'll either put you on the list or you know, sell you a ticket, whichever, whichever one it happens to be. Um, you know, we're also looking for more bookings, so if you come across a festival or a show that needs another band, um, please let us know. We're definitely looking for that. I'm kind of taking this summer off of the musical theater stuff uh, as far as, you know, hits goes. They're under some new leadership and uh, want to take the, the classes a little bit different direction, so I get some time to, uh, to breathe before I head to Virginia to work with the wonderful Chesterfield County Schools. Um, but yeah, if you have any questions about what I'm up to, please feel free to drop a line and enjoy um, me and Robert. Um, we, it, it always ends up starting someone going somewhere else anyway. Right. But, uh, I don't know, we can start with like theater sure. in general. Let's do that. That's been on my mind a lot recently. Yeah, and that takes me out of my element a little bit. Right. Well, that's the other thing is that we, it, it is your podcast, and we don't want to wander too far off from the title, the topic of the title. Yeah. Well, what what kind of uh, what is what is the world of theater? How is that affecting your world? So right now, you know, so much of it is um, that's that's sort of my side job. Um, Last year was a particularly busy year for me. This year has been a little bit less so practically, but I've been doing a lot more thinking about it, if that makes sense. Um, you know, so last year I did five overlapping shows, which was really sort of a terrible idea in some ways. Um, you know, it was good for my resume. It was good experience. I, I enjoyed, um, you know, the, the process of each one of them. There were four, five very different shows. Um, and then this year, you know, I'm only on my second show at this point in the year. Last year, by this time, I was on show three, uh, with two for sure committed by this point. Yeah. Um, so that's been, you know, sort of my big thing. And I guess I should say, you know, I'm not 
this is the first show that I'm going to be on stage for. You know, it's been, I've been, been in the back uh, directing for the most part for the last, last couple of years has been my thing. So I'm already sort of coming into things thinking conceptually, you know, rather and, and, and sort of a combination of conceptual and practical um, sort of big picture stuff as opposed to, you know, coming in as an actor, as a singer, where it's really about doing, you know, a, a sort of specific job and fitting in and building that community, working with the other actors, um, you know, I've found myself sort of deliberately stepping back from that in a way. And that's what's going to make this show really interesting is because I have to sort of do both. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not only doing the music directing job where I'm teaching the harmony and figuring out how to make it work and doing all that, but um, I'm going to be on stage yeah. as of now. You know, unless we find a bunch more guys, which is unlikely at this point. Um, you know, I'm going to be on stage actually dancing and singing along as well as, as doing the teaching part. So is that, I don't know, is that, we've talked a little bit about it, but is that an ideal thing? Are you trying to step away from performance completely in that regard or just whatever it calls for? For me, I... I would much rather have the arrangement we had in Spelling Bee. That's sort of my ideal, where, where I'm in the rehearsals. I may or may not be at the piano at that point, mm -hmm. um, and I'm in the pit, you know, sort of helping create the show, but not necessarily doing the building a character, doing the, the costume and the acting and all of that. I've never, I shouldn't say never, I've drifted away since high school really enjoying that part of it. You know, I started... I started in theater as an actor, um, and, and my theater and my music were separate for a couple of years. Um, you know, when I got into junior high, um, you know, we don't, junior highs don't do musicals typically, at least mine didn't. Yeah. And so my first four or five shows were plays, mm -hmm. um, you know, over, over the course of two years there, um, fall show, spring show. I didn't do a musical until I was a sophomore in high school. Mm. Now, I knew at that point that I wanted to do musicals, um, and I knew that I liked the repertoire. You know, I started looking at musical theater songs when I was in eighth grade with my voice teacher a little bit. Um, and all through high school, I did a, a musical theater singing contest. But the, um, uh, the actual act of, of doing singing and acting in the context of a show, you know, I didn't do until, uh, yeah, like the fall of my sophomore year of high school. So that was a... Um, so, so I came in, I had, what, I, what I mean to say is I had that acting training. Yeah. You know, my freshman year of high school, I specifically remember we did a pretty in-depth study of the Stanislavski method, which is a, a, one of the sort of basic schools of acting. And that one is grounded in realism. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's been a couple of other methods that have come along since then that I don't know nearly as well that are grounded in sort of theatrical realism. That makes sense. The kind of thing where not, it, it makes sense to... Um, not only interact with someone on stage like it's a real person, but also to occasionally make grand gestures that are effective to the audience but are not necessarily something that you would actually do, you know, sitting here in, you know, a, a room. Yeah. So um, so I did that, and, you know, I did choir and theater all through high school, and I did musicals, and I did community theater and all that. And then um, toward the end of high school and going into college, I sort of drifted into the director role a little bit more. And the keyboard role, you know, I played keyboard for my first show, and that was my only responsibility was playing keyboard. Um, and that was for a production of Songs for New World, which has a ridiculous keyboard part, and I'm still not entirely sure how I managed to learn it. Um, but the, um, uh, so I did that, and that was my first time really being involved with the show, but not being on stage. Mm -hmm. And in fact, for uh, three of the five performances, I was completely hidden from the audience. I was behind a wall, uh, completely backstage. Um, and then the other two performances, I was kind of off to the side. Then, um, as a result of that, and sort of just them discovering that I could play piano and that I, I enjoyed the teaching side of things, because I knew by then, this was graduating high school, mm -hmm. so I was on my way to college, I was going to do music education, I knew all of that. And so the theater that I was working with, which at the time was Houston Family Arts Center, uh, now Stageworks, they um, asked me to come in and teach one of their kids' summer camps. Um, and you've seen these kind of things, that the, stuff that, the kind of things that you've worked with. Yeah. You've seen sort of the end product 
from your work with hits. But essentially, it was three weeks of full day, you know, nine to three kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and at the end of the week, starting Thursday of the last week, we had performances. Um, and at the time, you know, the stuff that they were doing, I think this is the kind of stuff that's really good for kids at that age, from my experience. 45 minutes to an hour mm-hmm. of show, you know, and that's really plenty. Uh, because it gives you enough so that you're not constantly doing the same little thing all the time. You know, if it's a 20-minute show, there's not a whole lot that you can do. Right. Um, in terms, but it was big enough that that there was a clear story arc. There were, you know, today we're going to work on this scene and that. And but it was small enough that we didn't lose attention. It was, you know, once we started stringing it together, it was kind of easy to keep the kids sort of corralled mm-hmm. and say, "All right, now you only have five minutes." before you go back on stage rather than you have 25 minutes because there's that much more story. Yeah. So, um, so that was sort of my, my summer job, um, for several years, uh, 2010, 11, 12, um, maybe 13. I don't remember now. I think 2013 was the last year that I did it because that would be before my junior year. Um, and, uh, after that, they changed hands, and the new management didn't know me, and I was, of course, out of town in college, and so uh, I was just never asked to come back. Mm-hmm. Um, that was really, there wasn't, it wasn't like there was a big, like, breakup or anything like that. Yeah. Um, so that was that was how I sort of got some experience with that teaching um, and that directing. And at the time, I was doing a fair amount of piano stuff, though all of those shows were done with tracks, so I wasn't accompanying very much. Um, and then. Um, when I, the way I actually got into full scale music directing, what I'm doing now, uh, was the weirdest fluke. Um, my second year teaching when I moved out to Magnolia, the, um, we have a voice teacher who comes in and teaches, uh, for us twice a week. And she has ties to the theater that I work with now, the Players Theater Company in Conroe. Um, at the time she was either officially or unofficially on the play selection committee for them. Um, she was friends with the director that was doing the next big musical, that kind of thing. And so I think this was within like 24 hours of me meeting her. I was connected with him and doing that show. <laughs> it was really, um, you know, we just kind of got to talking and, and, you know, it was kind of, hi, how are you? And at some point, I don't know if she talked about musicals first or I did. Um, and, and she said, oh, they're looking for a vocal guy to do Meet Me in St. Louis out there. They have a, a music guy, but not a, he's not a vocalist, and they'd really like someone to come in and, and have that expertise. And I was like, let me talk to the director, but maybe so. You know, and at the time, I was actually looking at auditioning for another show um, where I would have been on stage and playing. Um, it's a, a odd little show called Closer Than Ever um, that I'd recently fallen in love with. I learned about it in college. Um, and the way that that show is cast, it's... Um, three men, two women, and one of the men plays piano for the whole show. Okay. And, and gets a couple of character bits and a couple of songs to himself, but he's also the orchestra. Huh. So um, I was like, I could do that, never mind the fact that the character's supposed to be in his mid-30s, and I was 20, you know, 23 <laughs> or whatever at the sure. time. Um, anyway, so I, I'd actually contacted that director, but um, Carol, the director for, for the players, um, she called me, we talked, um, it sounded like it was going to be interesting. You know, it looked like a lot of fun and, uh, she was willing to give me a shot. And so, uh, I signed on sight unseen. I, I knew we were doing meet me in St. Louis. I didn't know the show. I'd never seen the movie. I'd never met Carol. I'd never been to the theater. I'd never met Sal, who was the, the conductor mm-hmm. at the time, you know, any of that. I, and I was going to miss the first round of auditions. The, the way that it worked out, I had just joined a, uh, traveling choir, Mm-hmm. Um, that I, mm, I've sung with a few times. I'm not sure when the next time I'm going to be able to make it for them is. Um, but anyway, I, we were, we were doing a get together. It was my first time with them. Uh, we were going to be in Chicago for a weekend in like September. And so, um, you know, auditions were like, were they just Saturday? They may have been Saturday, Sunday or Sunday. I don't remember. Anyway, I was coming back the day of the second day of auditions. And, and so I said, you know, I'm not, there's not, I'm not gonna be able to be there. So I showed up at callbacks mm-hmm. and I didn't know any of the actors. I didn't know what they'd done in their first round. You know, none of that. Um, I got the script. I started looking at it. I thought this is very strange. <laughs> it's got the melodies in that show are very weird. Um, 
you know, I met Sal, I met Carol. I mean, it was just, it was kind of a whirlwind. Yeah. All of these things um, happened very quickly. Um, and it was a really good experience, ultimately. You know, it ended up being the kind of thing, um, Carol and I are easygoing in some ways and very insistent on getting our way in other ways, but they balance each other out well. Um, you know, Sal, um, I learned in that show how to work with him because he thinks about music very differently because he's coming from a band orchestra perspective. Um, you know, so like I learned from that show, I learned that I needed to be pretty much be ready to give him specific metronome markings throughout, you know, and then this is about here and, you know, play a little bit, you know, it's like, just give me 72 and this is 80 and this is a hundred, you know? And so after that, there are our later shows. I've done that, but, um, yeah, it was, it was, just really worked well. Um, and I enjoyed the cast, you know, the, uh, the, the cast apparently liked me. I got a lot of compliments from it. Um, you know, and, and I was really happy. That was a show where most of the cast was older than me. And it was my first time working with adults. Mm. Um, all the shows that I'd done prior had either been youth shows or teen shows. So this was my first time working with a cast that literally included people up into their sixties. Um, you know, and so, um, so I was a little nervous about that, but, um, you know, everyone trusted me and went with me and, and we were real happy with the result. And so since then it just kind of progressed working with them, um, through that, that's where I got my CYT connection. Um, and then that's how I, um, you know, started sort of spreading around and really every show that I've gotten since then has been as a result of my work with that company. Mm -hmm. Uh, and sort of the track record that I've I've built, um, you know the 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 compliments I've gotten from cast, from working with directors, you know, and then the um, the the sort of reputation, you know, I I have no idea how much it's impacted my being offered things, but when I won the Monty Award last year for best music direction, yeah, um, you know that's pretty exciting. Um, that same show was nominated for a Broadway World Houston Award. Uh, we didn't win. I don't remember who it went to now, but just sort of getting, being able to put that kind of thing, you know, on a resume or, or in contact with people. So that's been fun. But yeah, I could trace everything back to sort of a chain of events, starting with, with talking to Shan at the school mm-hmm. to, uh, to where I am now. Well, that's, that's fascinating. I did. I kind of relate to, to people in that way that my, because, I mean, theater itself is kind of a, an amalgamation of a bunch of different things. You've got mm-hmm. musical training. You've got to have an actor training. But then you also have to be able to, like, talk to people and work with people right. from all over that may be making musical decisions and have no musical training or vice right. versa about drama. Um, so that's one th- one of the things that I'm always curious about is, um, I mean, obviously, in, the, in a practical sense, your your musical training came from school. Some of your theater came from from school as well, but like, what, <clears throat> what are some of the things that you think maybe prepared you to do that first gig with, with players? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, probably the, the biggest thing at that point, for sure, the biggest thing that I saw in my favor was my choral background. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my voice training, my degree is in choral music. Mm-hmm. My, my primary instrument in college was voice, which meant that I, I knew from a physiological perspective, what is healthy sounding. Mm-hmm. And I knew from a teaching perspective how to evoke that and also how to bend some of that into, uh, you know, the theater sound. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I've, of course, my training is classical and musical theater sound is not quite the same. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did a bunch of research. Um, this leads into a, a, a sort of different topic. But I did a bunch of research my senior year on sort of what is the, what are the fundamental techniques that make for healthy singing regardless of what style you're going into. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, that actually turned into my honors thesis. Um, you know, I had to write a, a big paper for the honors program, and uh, I did it within my discipline, and so I don't remember the title of it. It's over on my bookshelf right now. Mm-hmm. But um, basically, it was an exploration of how does the voice work and... Um, what are the what are the fundamental techniques that, like I said, that make for healthy singing, 
that then you can go in whatever direction from there that you want. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, understanding, especially in in theater, the biggest thing that we have to deal with, and you did a little bit in high school, but especially in theater, is what's called vocal registration. Mm -hmm. And without getting too much into the sort of technical elements of it, basically it's how light or heavy of the sound that you want. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so for girls, it's the difference between belting and what we in theater refer to as legit singing. The sort of more classical, mm. you know, head voice type thing, and head voice is one of the terms for a vocal register. Mm. Um, for guys, it's the sort of the difference between singing and shouting at the top end of your range, mm-hmm. um, and then also there's that falsetto quality. Mm. So I did a lot of research into into how those work. You know, no one there's that's a whole it's a wormhole. Yeah, you know, oh, yeah. no one no one completely understands it, but everyone kind of knows how to get what they want out of it. Yeah, so. Um, you know, like even, for example, um, last night in callbacks for, for my current show, you know, I turned to one of the singers and I said, can you, can you go a little lighter here? Can you do a little bit more, more head voice at that spot? Um, you know, and just being able to sort of ask that and know, know that it's doable, mm-hmm. for one thing, and know that it's the sound that I want and how to put that into words. You know, that was, that was a big thing. Um, the other thing that's not so much musical, but I think led to me gaining a lot of ground with my, with my performers is weirdly the really rough experience I had my first year teaching. Yeah. Because what it led to me doing was coming into that fall of 2015 as I was starting into new school, coming in from a much more humble place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which is sort of contradictory. If you're going to be a director, you have to be a bit of a dictator, sure. but it, came from a place of, instead of do this, it came from a place of, all right, let's try this. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a really little thing, but that was one of the things that, that someone came up to me at the end of that show and she said, you know, what I've really enjoyed about working with you is that you have high expectations, but you're really encouraging about it. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, okay, let's try this thing a little bit different, or that was good, but now let's add this other thing. Mm-hmm. You know, that was something that, that I really took away from that, and, and I started wondering if I'm doing that as much as a teacher. Mm-hmm. But I've definitely kept that in mind as I've worked with other, um, with other shows, and, and I think that has definitely helped, um, especially when you're working with kids, you know, with, with kids' theater. The, the biggest challenge there is to be teaching, but at the same time be results-focused. Right. You know, I tend to get bound up in the the teaching process. And, and we talked a little bit about this with that class that I was teaching this spring, yeah. uh, where I wanted it to be more teaching focused and the expect, the students were expecting it to mean more performance focused. Mm-hmm. And so there was a little bit of that tension there, but the, um, uh, you know, I tend to come into working with kids, especially be, I guess, because it's what I do all day. I tend to come into that from a perspective of, all right, we're going to learn something. Mm-hmm. And, whether it quite works out at the end is less important than whether we grew. Yeah. You know, and I, I do a better job putting that away with, with shows. Um, but that was definitely something. The other thing, just briefly, that I took out of, um, out of Meet Me in St. Louis that I actually learned from my head director when we started doing our school production of 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee um, is a willingness to be faithful to the spirit of the notes on the page mm-hmm. without being necessarily 100% true to every single note, mm-hmm. especially in the voice leading on vocal parts. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I've learned to adapt that to the cast in a lot of ways. You know, when, when we were doing that show, we were working with a lot of inexperienced singers. Mm-hmm. And so she said, all right, sopranos, I'm going to teach you a section that sounds like a melody, sounds like a soprano line. Altos, I'm going to teach you something that's very static because that's a typical alto line. You know, basses, I'm going to teach you something that is almost entirely roots of chords because mm-hmm. that's a bass line. And she didn't say that directly, but that was what she taught. And so she took what was a three-note chord progression and sort of rewrote it without ever... She didn't ever actually write it down, but sort of rewrote it into a, a four-part, more traditionally written, mm-hmm. you know, feel. And I actually took that and turned it immediately around into Meet Me in St. Louis. Now, when I'm working with more experienced singers or with stronger singers, so like when I redid Spelling Bee at the community theater level, I didn't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I did uh, in a couple of places. I adapted things where I was like, all right, 
this has this character going to a high note and she's not totally comfortable there or he would be in falsetto with that spot or mm-hmm. we had a couple of really strong tenors in that show. Yeah. And so I quite often I switched the top notes between a soprano and a tenor mm-hmm. sort of thing. But, um, you know, that was really it. And I've always felt a little bit weird about that in some ways because if you're in a show that's really, like, clearly specified... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's, to me, I'm like, your first, your first step should be to do that. Yeah. So if it, like when we did Cats, you know, it's written out four staves, soprano, alto, tenor, bass. They're not labeled that way, but the clefs are what you would expect. Yeah. You know, so on the one hand, you know, it leaves a little bit of arguable leeway as to what's really meant because it's not 100% clear. Right. But on the other hand, you know, it's, as a choir teacher, I look at it that and I go, it's four-part open score. Yeah. Um, but... You know, with that show, again, working with a lot of inexperienced singers, I said, there's no way. Mm-hmm. There, we can't do five-part harmony, which is what most of that show is, and the soprano ones are up above the staff the whole time. Yeah. So, so I did some massive rewriting for that. But with other shows, you know, I've kept it simpler or less, um, you know, sort of less dramatically messing with what appears to be to my attention on the page. Mm-hmm. And that comes from a, a, that the, the classical music side of me in a way. You know, that fidelity to what did the composer write? You know, and and kind of having to balance that within the theater world. Sometimes there are obvious mistakes. Sometimes there are less obvious mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and sometimes there are things that are negotiable mm-hmm. in a way. You know, if, if you reach the same creative goal, what, right. you know, so. That, that kind of brings up to me the idea of I think there is this sort of ubiquity that we all sort of go for and, and having several different disciplines, you know, I studied as a singer, as a percussionist, as a member of a band, as a band director, as a acapella, you know, small ensemble director, um, you know, I think there is this, there is this good sound that, that does sort of transcend. So I think that, you know, the thesis topic was really, was really fascinating um, you know, we, we think of all these different ways to get that really good sound and to, to, to put a good product. And I think that even if it's not always exactly in the, the clearest words, I think, um, you know, can you sing lighter? You don't have to say, can you apply 25% more falsetto? You know, right. It's just an idea. And that the more, it, it, I always am fascinated by the topic of interdisciplinary things because, mm-hmm. Um, you know, in musical theater, some people combine that as one, but then you get the musical theater person who also plays saxophone in the band or, you know, played trombone or sing in the church choir for 30 years. It's really not the same, but they have this, a, a good idea of, like, what is what is good, and they've, they've been around it. So <clears throat> that's one of the things that's really fascinating. I'm a huge advocate for, you know, um, start, start in an art a fine art young right and if you have time in your schedule you know for young folks do more than one thing and, right and even if you don't do it at a professional level you know if you're in college play in the concert band sing in the right. choir because Absolutely. they always need it yeah and we encourage our kids you know consistently <coughs> and that's one of the things that i've really liked about our structure out at magnolia west is we we really do our best within the two musical disciplines especially to share kids nicely mm-hmm. You know, we make a point of not scheduling our top ensembles opposite each other. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we, when a kid, if a kid comes to us and says, I'm looking to drop band and I want to join choir, then we don't just say, okay, let's do it. You know, we make a point of, of checking, talking to the band director and mm-hmm. saying, you know, this kid came up to me, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we encourage, we, we definitely encourage our students to do as much as they can as well. You know, piano and choir or you know, when we have when we have a kid who's really interested in doing, um, uh, you know, going going to college, especially if they're a band student, we strongly encourage them to before they graduate take at least a year of piano, mm-hmm. a year of choir, and AP music theory, so that then they go in and they can sight read, mm. vocal, they can sight sing vocally. You know, they have the ear training from uh, from AP music theory plus the theory background. And they have some of that piano practical skill. Mm-hmm. So that then they go in, and even if that doesn't... We, we don't encourage them to skip classes when they get into college. You know, skip your theory one because you've got a good grade leave. We, we actually encourage them to take that basic class mm-hmm. because there's so many adjustments when you, join, when you go into college. Yeah. 
that were like, if you have two classes that are a gimme class, then when you're dealing with being homesick, when you're dealing with, I have to deal with my own, I have to find my own food, I have to, right. you know, yeah. I have to wash my own clothes, I have to do all these things, then that's one less thing to have to worry about as you're making all those adjustments. Yeah. So yeah, that interdisciplinary thing is is really important. And and you talked a little bit about, you know, musical theater as in some ways being a unified thing, in some ways being being sort of a combination. That's part of why um, I get a little bit frustrated anytime I start hearing people make it, arguing about opera versus musical theater. Yeah, is because they have far more in common than they have different. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and and I I was gonna gonna connect back for a second because I have my the rest is noise book here, uh, which starts with a little bit of Wagner, but that was his whole idea. You know, the 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 whole total all encompassing artwork where where the every element from the set design to the choreography to the music to the singing to the costumes to the the space even that the audience is in um, contributes to. The, the storytelling contributes mm-hmm. to the work, you know, and that's the, and, and I think that, that really good theater and, and good musical theater works the same way, you know, that, and that's one of the things that's, that's really fascinating to me to see a production, like, for example, the production of West Side Story that I did last mm-hmm. year that um, was really, uh, you know, was really highly, highly awarded, and that was because there was a, a really singular vision. Mm-hmm. You know, the director and the choreographer really shaped that show. I didn't do a whole lot um, because the singing in that show is not that difficult. But the director and the choreographer really shaped that show, and they had a very particular vision for what they were going to create. And so when the director designed the set, that showed there. When the when they did costumes, you know, that all of those things, the way the characters acted, the way they danced, the way they moved, who they were partnered with, all of these little details... To the point of even we actually got permission from the theater to paint graffiti on the walls mm. uh, outside the proscenium along the sides. Mm. You know, sort of like with the posters we did for Spelling Bee. Yeah. It was the same idea, except we actually painted. Mm. Um, you know, and, and they, they took the back wall of the theater that had previously been flat black with the garage doors and all of that and painted it to look like real bricks. Mm. You know, so you really did sort of draw the audience in that way. Yeah. And that was really cool. That was something, um, you know, that's something that I'm, I'm really fascinated by. And we've talked a little bit about that recently. The, the theater as an environment and not just as a sort of playing space with the audience separate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the theater that I've always been the most fascinated by and also kind of the most scared of as an audience member because there's an unexpected quality and I'm terrified of the unexpected. Um, <laughs> Uh, is that sort of interactive uh, drawing drawing the audience in, mm-hmm. you know? And if you can make the audience feel safe, and I think that they buy in more. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. that's to me one of the the promises of um, of theater in general is that it can be a little bit more immersive. I mean, there's there's a quality where. I mean, sometimes even like you break the fourth wall and the audience becomes part of the show. Right. That's not really something that's practical in you know a, a strictly musical setting or uh, you right. know, a straight play as as frequently. Um, you know, sometimes, but in musical theater, it's kind of like if you know if someone's reciting a line, it can very much feel like they're not reciting it to anyone in particular, or they're just talking to the character next to them. But a lot of times, musicals you're going to have to point at the audience, it sounds like, and feels like someone's singing to you, right. or at least at you, or in your general direction. It's, right. it's very different. Um, and that, that's, that my time with theater has kind of shaped what, what I try to do whenever I have control over you know, what's happening. When I, um, you know, when I would do a percussion concert when I was a, a teacher, it was like, you know, there's stuff all over the walls. There's kids waiting between the band hall, like the green room backstage, mm-hmm. until the hallway. There's people playing. That's always what I, that's the environment that I want to create. I always use that word environment. It's, right. it's very different from just, you know, the show. Right. Where there's a stage and an audience and a clear division and someone waves their arms, you clap and everyone goes home. Right. I think, I mean, we've had hundreds of years of that. I think it's... Right. Well, and, and you know, the, the thing that's been, I, I feel like is, is the current movement in, in the performing arts in general, uh, 
because I'm, I'm even seeing as I read articles about musicians becoming more theatrical in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, trying to sort of draw the audience in and get them more involved and eliminate that fourth wall in a lot of ways. You know, I think it can be really, um, can, be, can make it a really powerful experience. You know, and I've seen some of that as we, we've talked about some of our plans for this chamber music group that we're mm-hmm. working on. You know, we've talked about trying to, to find ways to involve the audience. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we haven't been super experimental with it yet because we're still trying to get it off the ground, but we have some of those ideas for, mm-hmm. for you know, getting them involved. The, the improvisation at this last concert was a good example where the, um, you know, the, the, the clicker then, you know, the, got the audience involved. And it was a little weird. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I talked to a couple people afterward and they were like, that was not unpleasant, but it was strange. <laughs> um, you know, um, <laughs> but but they got a kick out of being being involved. Yeah, you know, being able to do that a little bit. Um, you know, and and you do a little bit of that with with your presentation at the beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm hoping that some of our future performers will do a little bit more uh, engaging with the audience before they perform. You know, as well. But uh, yeah, the environment and and the atmosphere of a space I think is really fascinating. Um, you know the the. And, and the more I think about it, we're seeing, you're even seeing it outside of the arts in some ways. I think that the escape room thing, mm-hmm. I, I haven't actually had a chance to do one. I keep wanting to, and at some point I'll post on Facebook and say, hey, anyone want to go and see if I can find like three people? Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's an environment. That's an interactive, you know, that's something, something different. You know, and the, uh, the, the, in, the environmental theater that I've gotten a chance to see, you know, when I got to do Sleep No More mm-hmm. back in January, you know, was the same thing. They literally just have a five-story building that you wander through. Yeah. And you may or may not ever see any actors. If you don't, <laughs> it's kind of your fault because yeah. they're everywhere. But, you know, I mean, it was, it was 15 minutes into that thing before I saw anything happening. It was just environment. It was just the world, you know. And that's what's always fascinated me. Uh, you know, I've talked to people recently who are like, I'm a Disney fan. I'm like, what kind of Disney fan are you? Are you Disney princesses? Are you Disney animation? Are you some particular movie? You know, Disney musicals, whatever. For me, my biggest fascination with Disney, with Disney is the parks. Mm-hmm. Um, and is the, the because the, that's what the parks are, is world building. Yeah. You know, and they go to incredible lengths to do, you know, to build this thing that feels both real and unreal at the same time, Mm -hmm. you know, um, and they, some of the stuff, I mean, it's incredible how some of the illusion holds up, you know, I've only, I've been to Disney world, um, and you know, you walk down main street right at the beginning as you walk in and it feels like kind of like an old school main street, even when you're surrounded by hundreds of thousands of people, you know, and Mickey mouse is over there in the corner and whatever, (laughs) but you know, the, all of the stores have hand painted lettering, Mm -hmm. even on the second floor where there's like, you know, an optometrist or a a dentist or whatever, you know, and, and so, you know, every detail is taken care of, Mm -hmm. which I think is just fascinating, you know, and they, everything, they make everything seem taller. You know, I learned about forced perspective from Disney which yeah. I think is fascinating. Um, you know, the, the castle there at, at Disney World the same way. You know, it's, it's 198 feet tall because if they made it 200 feet tall, they would have had to put a light on top of it um, <laughs> for airplane clearance. Sure. Um, you know, but it's 198 feet, but it feels like it's 300. Yeah. Because as you go up, the windows get smaller. So not only do they look smaller because perspective makes things look smaller, but they look even smaller than that, which makes them seem that much more distant and those kind of things that that makes me that makes me wonder i stepping away from teaching full-time i've had a lot of time to develop my teaching technique less time to apply it you know i still give clinics and everything but that makes me is is that something that you ever consciously think about when you when you're teaching like maybe the the older kids or if you're working with community uh theater you know 20 somethings Mm because i know that there's there's a lot of those folks doing wonderful things is that something you ever talk about like i mean i know there's the find your space fill the stage that sort of thing or find Mm -hmm. your light rather but um is that something you actually you consider is let's create this artistic environment and then move within it or Mm -hmm. is that sometimes you know i do um uh from from a practical teaching perspective there are plenty of times when i 
select an activity or a next move based on where the, where the energy in the room is and where I want it to be. Yeah. So for example, you know, the men's choir that I teach, you know, every day, as soon as the bell rings, I start playing piano mm-hmm. and we start warm ups immediately. And that creates that environment of yes, it's energy, but we're immediately we need into focus. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas if a group comes in, some of the other groups that I've, I've worked with, um, you know, they come in and I might, when the bell rings, I might start playing piano, but I might play softly. Uh-huh. And I might just improvise a little bit, something sort of melodic and relaxing and calming and whatever. And that, you know, after about 30 seconds, brings them down and they sort of are listening. Then they start listening and they start paying attention, you know, or um, early morning warm ups, mm-hmm. you know, same thing. You know, I start early morning warm ups very softly. Mm-hmm. And I play softly, and I play gently, and it's relaxed, and then we build, and we get bigger, and we do all that. As far as with my with with the actual performance part of it, you know, I I don't get to do a lot of the directing on the acting side of things, mm-hmm. especially as I'm working with theater stuff. Um, I really try to leave that to the director because I don't want to step on their toes, and I want them to be able to implement their vision. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I'm working with my choir kids. Um, I definitely talk sometimes about the mood mm-hmm. and about, you know, uh, the, the sort of feel of a song, you know, and this is relaxed and this is, uh, especially if I'm trying to get them to relax mm-hmm. because when you're, when you teach singing, you know, you inevitably come at things from a logical perspective. At least I do. You know, I come from a, these are the notes on the page. These are the rhythms. These are the dynamics. These are the words, you know, all those elements. And then, but at some point you do have to sort of let that go. And the, the thing that I always try to remember is the song is not the notes on the page. Mm-hmm. You know, the notes on the page are the instructions, and the song is, is what comes out of that. Yeah. And so, you know, we're doing, um, uh, we were doing a piece uh, for, our, uh, for our UIL contest this last year, and the... Um, Rather than talking about the end of the piece as being loud, uh, which it was, it was, you know, forte fortissimo's tenors up in the t- highest octave they sang and, and the whole thing, you know, we talked, I talked about it being triumphant because that's really what the mood of that moment was. Yeah. You know, we we're singing Be Thou My Vision is the last verse, High King of Heaven, my victory won, may I reach heaven's joys, O bright heaven's sun. And it's just, you know, the whole thing just builds at that spot. And it's, it's also a way, you know, sort of, sneakily of getting them to sing loud without pushing yeah you know when you when it's for me when i when i think triumphant there's sort of a an almost right before the downbeat i have to slam my foot down and ground myself you know just sort of the classic opera sort of park and bark you know (laughs) sort of gripping onto some kind of rails down you know just every muscle in your body doing in that and that creates it creates a kind of support Mm -hmm. You know, and so using using terms like that, you know, I think pulls into some of that environment. Um, you know, I've tried, uh, and and fortunately, my coworker has been sort of open to this. We've tried playing with format sometimes in our our casual concerts. Mm-hmm. You know, the the pop show being the most obvious example, where um, I took the model that she had developed and have sort of spun a couple of unique things on it. Mm-hmm. Um, or like, for example, our Christmas concert this last year, we did a, a four, four voice canon with the singers spread around the room. Mm-hmm. You know, we had, a, we had a kids choir in the front that was joining us and then we had our girls choirs and then we had the men's choir and then we had the varsity mixed choir. And so, um, we were doing a, a canon on Masters in This Hall mm-hmm. and Basically, we would sing each verse in unison, and then each time we would add canon. And sometimes it was canon from the left to the right of the audience, mm-hmm. and you know, toward the end it was front to back. Mm-hmm. So you had that sort of surrounding, you know, feel. Yeah. Um, and she, we wanted to do a little bit more of that, and and there was some staging that didn't quite make it into that performance. But um, you know, pop music is a great way to do it yeah. because it's usually things that the audience is familiar with. Mm-hmm. And so by doing things like having the singer sit on the edge of the stage, yeah. um, you know, and, and even little things like that, I haven't, we haven't gotten bold enough, we haven't had a long enough introduction, frankly, to have a singer come in through the audience or, or a group mm-hmm. come in through the audience like that. Um, but the, uh, 
those are the kind of things that I, you know, I'm interested to, to explore. The, I like the idea of surrounding, mm-hmm. either the audience surrounding the performer or the performer surrounding the audience. Um, I like the latter when you can because I think it feels safer as an audience member if the performers are around you than as a performer if the audience is around you. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking back to if I had played, you know, that Prelude and Fugue that I played at our last recital, and if I had been, uh, you know, had people on all four sides, you know, I would have been that much more nervous. Yeah. You yeah. Know? But I think as an audience member, when you're seated, when you're safe, you have your program in your hand, you have your you know, people you came with on either side or strangers, but you're all kind of in this together. And then there are performers moving around or among, you know, I, I like that idea. That's sort of why every time I think about any kind of arena space, I mm-hmm. think about using it that way. Yeah. So <coughs> that was a long rambling thing, and I have no idea if I ever answered the question you actually no, asked. But. No, definitely. And that's... <laughs> That's one of the, the reasons I like this format is because it, I mean it did it's but there's there's so much, um, there's so much to talk about with all of this stuff. Right. Um, I do. I want to talk a little bit more about the, um, you know the the chamber project that we've got going on. But the the last yeah. thing about the, <clears throat> um, kind of the, again another you know topic that we we get into a lot is is pedagogy and teaching mm-hmm. in general. Um, but, and, and, you know, I think choir kind of lends itself to that because you can reasonably split up your ensemble and have people around. And as long as Mm -hmm. there's some at least vague pitch center, you could, you can get away with it. I think less so is that practical for, you know, a band or an orchestra setting just Mm because some, some instruments have to be seated or or reasonably. Right. But, you know, I'm, I'm curious and just, there may not be an answer, you know, here in this room, but I've one of the things I was trying to do is to, to sort of also, you know, create that environment, you mm-hmm. know, not, not necessarily have half the band sitting in the hallway between the green room. And right. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, sometimes have a, a flute trio on the way in or, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think it's just because of these big concerted works that have 60 plus members and, you know, 25 different parts. Right. It lends itself less, but I'm, I'm curious. And one of the, the cool things about this is, you know, um, maybe it'll start a discussion among the band world. Like, how do we right. how do we pull some more of this in? Um, right. You know, how do we let our performers surround the audience? Right. Well, and and I think you know, there's there's different ways to do it. I've definitely like I've I don't know if it was the Houston Symphony. There was there was some symphony that I read about that was experimenting briefly with um, having selected audience members actually among the performers. Mm. You know, and and obviously if you do that, you can only have like ten yeah. in a fifty piece orchestra. But, but, you know, that's a, a unique experience for those performers, for mm-hmm. sure, or for those, for those uh, listeners. I think if you have a work, the, the model that I see in, in choral works where it works the best is when you have subsections. Mm-hmm. Uh, either, like, for example, the, the classic, the sort of oldest uh, examples are these antiphonal works in the Renaissance where you literally have two choirs, yeah. um, you know, that, that may or may not function uh, independently, they may sometimes sing together, but um, you know, there's a group that is sort of unified among itself, but distinct from the others. So, for example, if you had something that um, you know massively features, say, the brass mm-hmm. or or even the principal brass, yeah, you know, you might be able to put them slightly separate, yeah, you know, that kind of thing. Um, or if you had something that has, like you talked about, like having a, a small ensemble. You talked about, I think, having them as in a separate space, sort right. of as a, a but, um, you know, I mean, I'm thinking even back to a performance that we did in college. There's a piece that they do every year as the opener to the Baylor Christmas concert that has uh, very simply antiphonal trumpets. Hmm. It had, um, you know, one, uh, the, the lead trumpet in the front and then two muted trumpets in the back corners. Mm-hmm. And they did sort of a call and response thing. You know, it was really simple. It was small, but it matched up with the fact that the choir was also surrounding the audience at that point. Yeah. You know, so, so you did have that sort of filling the whole room. And that's the other thing that I think it comes down to is how do you effectively fill the room? You know, um, cause you can do it with, with amplification too. Yeah. To some extent. Um, you know, you can't necessarily get the antiphonal feel, 
but you can certainly, you know, create a more consistent environment throughout the room, uh, which is part of why I like small theaters, by the way. Yeah. Because it's easier to manage that. You know, when you have, I'm thinking of even our choir concerts, you know, you've been in the auditoriums at the Magnolia High Schools. They're deep. Yeah. And, um, you know, the experience that you get being up in the, you know, first 10 rows or so is completely different from the experience you get in the first 10 rows of the back section. Yeah. You know, and for, to some extent you may want that, but, you know, that's, that's just a different way of thinking about it. Um, but yeah, I like the idea of, of having sort of a casual, uh, sort of a casual music encounter maybe superimposed with a more formal one. Um, you know, I actually almost did that with my piano recital this year. I had a, a girl who was absolutely petrified, stage fright, just yeah. like she would, just the prospect of getting up even in front of her class yeah. and playing for her, she would just burst into tears. And just really, um, she's very smart, she's really hardworking girl, she played very, very well, but she just had that sort of deep-seated terror. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I joked with her half seriously about having her play while the audience was coming in, mm-hmm. you know, as a because she could play well and she could play well while other people in the room, as long as she didn't feel like they were necessarily, sure. you know, and, and we joked about it and I, I, you know, sort of started thinking about the practical elements and I was like, that feels sort of, you know, it didn't feel like there was a way to do that and, and really do her hard work justice and, right not feel like I was singling her out in a weird way or something like that. So I didn't do that. Um, but, uh, and ultimately she ended up playing beautifully on, on the performance, just, you know, sort of the normal setup. But, um, but yeah, that's, um, that sort of casual sort of background music thing. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm always interested in that and I've never had a chance to do much of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not that good of a pianist that I can just go find a piano <laughs> bar somewhere to, to let me play or whatever. But uh, that, that ability to sort of just, you know, throw some music in there that people may or may not pay attention to as sort of a side to the more sort of formal thing. It's yeah. interesting. Well, and, and some of that too, because uh, there's been composers, um, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of I guess, wind ensemble or, or, you know, concert band works will have antiphonal ensembles there's a, a piece I think a John Corleano piece had like an, an antiphonal marching band okay it was concert, concert instruments if I remember correctly but they were like back there and they would play and uh-huh. something there and then that piece was a little bit crazy but that's you know that's it's been done but on this crazy grand scale and I guess right. it's kind of up to composers like you know this section is for flute quartet you know in the in the foyer and then that they'll walk into another piece and right you know I've, I've seen um, I've heard pieces with like quotations or even an antiphonal like Klezmer band and it's mm-hmm. been just wonderful stuff and I think that was uh, Bernstein I can't remember which piece but mm-hmm. it was and it was it was quite effective but you know I maybe maybe that's the answer I just need to, to go write some stuff right. that has well and, and the idea of sort of the it, it's coming back to a little bit of the theatrical element the idea of sort of indirect storytelling Mm -hmm. you know if you had something like for example a chamber work that might be performed in the lobby beforehand that then you have a larger work that quotes from it yeah or that that sort of starts with that and builds out of it or is built on the same melody something like that you know could be a really interesting thing you know and i'm thinking back to sleep no more and to that environmental theater quality um we even did a little bit of meet me in st louis Mm -hmm. where um you know we for that show, before the show, we had like six of the cast members go out and sing Christmas carols in the lobby while I played piano. Yeah. You know, just to kind of set the mood. Um, and sleep no more from the time you walk in the building. Yeah. You're in the atmosphere. Yeah. You know, for, for a good 15, 20 minutes before you even go into the show. Yeah. You know, because they have the, the liberty to sort of take over that whole space. Yeah. So, yeah, something like that could be really fascinating. Um, the thing that I think the, the biggest practical obstacle is making sure that the audience gets it enough that the later it, the later bit has its impact mm-hmm. but not necessarily um you know forcing it right if that makes sense yeah you wouldn't you wouldn't want to necessarily like parade the 
previous quartet in and then have them, you know, featured. At, I, yeah, there's, right. there's, there's... Well, but I'm, I mean things like, for example, you know, the audience typically arrives over the course of 30 minutes. Yeah. So, you know, you can... Do you have that happen late before mm-hmm. the performance? In which case you have a bunch of audience members waiting around and some audience members who walk in in the middle of it. Yeah. Do you have it start before the first audience member comes in, in which case it has to either be long or repetitive? Yeah. For the point to... You know, those kind of questions. Yeah. Um, or you just put it somewhere in the middle and live with the live with the assumption that some audience members aren't going to get it. Yeah, you know that kind of thing is is really what I'm. Um, what what that's that's the practical part of it. That's always a challenge to sort of solve. Yeah, well, that's you know, trial and error. Or yeah, absolutely. Well, <clears throat> and that's the other thing. You know, I'm, uh, I'm I've started to uh, become more interested in interesting failures mm-hmm. recently. Sure. Um, you know, there was, there was a while, um, where I was for me personally and, and with the work that I was doing in the art that has been where I felt like playing it safe, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I've had good success playing it safe. You know, the shows that I've done have been well received and, you know, the, the actors have, have enjoyed working on it and the, you know, all of that. Um, you know, but, part of me wants to try something that there's a serious risk of something going, you know, badly wrong. And that's sort of what we're doing with this chamber thing. I think we're still playing it safe a little bit mm-hmm. because we're, we're, you know, playing to our strengths yeah. for the most part. You know, we're doing stuff that we sort of know how to do. Mm-hmm. And right now our audience is mostly friendly people. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's a little bit of a risk in that we, we don't know if it's going to be successful. You know, we don't know if we're going to have a draw outside of the people, outside of friends and family. We don't know if we're going to be able to fill up performers regularly. Yeah. You know, those kind of, there, there is some, some risk element in, in meeting that commitment, which is, is kind of cool and kind of exciting. That's one of the things that, that, that got me the most excited about because, you know, the few people that were, were gung-ho about it right away, piano is pretty safe for any sort of musical thing. Right. It's in keyboard or piano is in pretty much everything. Right. Or it could reasonably be added. But like right. the other folks, um, you know, a guitarist, a right. soprano sax player, a singer. Absolutely. To, to, to meaningfully juxtapose those things, um, you know, not to give away the secret or anything, but I, there is some of it where it's like, well, I want to see if, if this will work. Yeah, I want to see if I put a guitar playing a cello, or a guitar arrangement of a cello piece next to a cellist playing something with else. some piano music. Right. Like, is that gonna? Because some of the people in our audience were musicians, but not all of them, which was really I was very excited for. Right. Because I was thinking, well, the first one, you know, most of the audience was performers for a later piece. Right. Um, and that was a really cool environment to get those folks involved, but. You know, this last one, I was like, well, this, this will be more telling. Right. Um, you know, these people that, that don't really have a musical background, are they going to think this is completely off the wall and they don't get it at all? Or are they going to be like, oh, this was done well, and I would come see this again. I would right. see what are they going to put next to something next time. Right. I think maybe something to, to consider going forward with something like that is to... Uh, to, to sort of highlight it, to make a point of it in a way. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that that I'm really interested in seeing us do as we go forward is not only trying to make new points or trying to do things in a different way, but trying to sort of explain to the audience why. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and that's one of the reasons why I really want to get the performers invested as far as, as giving you know, a little bit of a presentation or, or in, in the format of the program notes, because, you know, like, for example, I'm curious um, from, I, I was curious from, from Blake's perspective, of course, he wasn't able to perform with us, mm-hmm. but why in his program notes uh, for his guitar arrangement of a piece for cello, did he spend so much time talking about how idiomatic this piece is for cello mm-hmm. without ever mentioning why he's playing it on guitar? Yeah. You know, as an example, mm. you know, um, and I would have been really interested in that question. You know, why is it? Why is it that if this piece is so such a great fit on this one instrument, mm-hmm. why is it that you feel like putting it on this other instrument is worth doing? Yeah, is important. Yeah, you know, um, because I'm sure there's a reason. Yeah, you know, 
but but that kind of question or you know if we're trying like for example if there's a, a weird experimental piece you know if you you got up there and said you know i i wrote this piece for alto flute and you know bass clarinet and as far as i can tell there has never been a duet for these two pieces before <laughs> so this is an experiment let's see what happens yeah you know tell me what you think at the end yeah that kind of thing where you know then it's clear to the audience a little bit that you know this is more this is about more than just you sit there and listen and we pick pieces that we like and we put it up there yeah you know um those kind of those kind of if we're going to push some boundaries i'd like to bring the audience along in a way yeah you know and and invite them in that way yeah i i think that's one of the the best things we can do is be transparent about it um yeah because some people are, are so used to the format of this is the audience, this is the performers, this is what you get, and that's it. Once it's over, we, we go home and don't ever talk about it. Right. I, I think um, you know that's the, the the few words before beforehand can really make it clear that like we're trying a different format, not right. not abandoning it because it, it is at the end of the day some people playing, some people not. But right. You know. Like you said, bring him along. I think that's that's important. That's and that is definitely what I want to do. One of the things, um, you know, that that we're we're sort of fighting against is the audience as just passive receptor. Yeah. You know, um, there there like you said, there is a little bit of that element because they're certainly not playing. Right. But if we can get the audience invested intellectually, emotionally, physically, you know, somehow. Um, you know, I think that that, I think that creates the more powerful experience that we're looking for. Mm -hmm. So that's definitely, um, you know, something to, to think about as we, as we forge ahead and as we continue to, to try new things. Mm -hmm. So the, um, uh, how to, how to do that. Yeah. And we've talked about some things, you know, we've talked about different, um, different spaces, you know, uh, we've talked about. Uh, different formats, that kind of thing. Um, I wonder if we might tr uh, might should try uh, theming a little bit more tightly. Yeah. Um, as we gain as we gain momentum and as the theme becomes obvious. Yeah. You know, month to month. I don't think necessarily they all need to be that way, but like for example, it might make sense in October to do something that is particularly Halloween themed, or in December to do something that's holiday themed, mm -hmm. or something like that. You know, um, could be another way to sort of get the audience to think about things. Yeah. Um, you know, to have that, that sort of tight grouping as opposed to this is what we could put together this month. Right. <laughs> which is, which is what the first two have been and that's what they were going to be. Yeah. I, th I think that's fine. But I think as, as we go, um, and ho hopefully this will fall in performers ears. Like, cause I know there are performers that are thinking this way and they're like, man, I wish I just had a place to play. Um, you know, I wish there was a, a place where if I wanted to, I could go play the piece and then, you know, talk for five minutes about why it was so important that I spend an hour every single day right. working on five measures of this piece right. know, or, you know, what this composer means or, you know, what this movement means or what, what the context was historically. That's something that's really cool that, um, you know, some, you listen to a history professor talk about why something is important. In a history class, maybe you're less interested than like, oh yeah, you know, my my friend over here had this happen, and or has this relative, and you know, ha or has this cultural background, and that's why this piece is. You're gonna listen to that and actually accept what it is. Right. It's not just like rhetoric that you're gonna spit out on a quiz later. You know. Right. Absolutely. <coughs> absolutely. And I think I have some ideas after we're done with this recording because mm -hmm. don't, we don't necessarily want to throw them out before we've had a chance to discuss them. Right. <laughs> but um, some ideas for, for ways to nudge, you know, a little bit in that direction. But the challenge, too, I think, is we want to push the envelope, but we don't want to push it so far so fast that we make people uncomfortable. Right. You know, we talked about this at our initial meeting. You know, we want the we want the performers to get up and talk to the audience. We want them to have that back and forth. But some people are less comfortable with that. Right. You know, and so we want to make sure that that we set sort of a reasonable boundary that doesn't scare people off who are nervous about it, but that encourages them to mm -hmm. get involved and encourages the the performers who are more invested in that, who are more excited about it, to do more of that. Yeah. Definitely. 
So, well, let's see, thinking of what we've got next, I mean, we're. I, w I would just I will always put out an open call for performers. I know we right. need we need some brass folks. I have a trombone player friend of mine who is moving back into town who has expressed some interest. Sweet. Um, so and he's a master's degree in trombone. He knows what he's doing. Um, he's expressed interest. He hasn't officially signed on, but I've kind of filled him in on the whole thing. Okay. Um, but yeah, for sure. And and assuming this is going to be dropped before our next performance, mm -hmm. um, that date is July 21st, I think. Let me check that before I say that. Yeah, July 21st. Um, and uh, that will be back at Kidville, I assume. So it will... Same... This is interesting. Um same location will be a different name at that time. Oh, okay. It will, it will then be listed as inspired, and I will make sure and put all sorts of information about that up. Yeah. Um, July 1, it will be changing. All right. Um, and then, of course, we have uh, our Facebook uh, Facebook and Instagram. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if, if anyone listening to this who is maybe not a performer wants to hear more about it, or is a performer and wants to start getting connected and see what we're about... We have a Facebook fan page, uh, Woodlands Chamber Music Project, and we have a uh, an Instagram account as well. Um, and of course, if you're friends with one of us and you want to get involved uh, as a performer, then we are happy to add you to the Facebook group. Or if you know someone who is a performer uh, who's done stuff with us, then we have a Facebook group. We'd love to have you involved. Yeah, please, please share. Please reach out to us. Like. Send me a, a Facebook message or whatever, you know, message the, the Chamber Music Group um, on Instagram if, if that's your, your deal. I think and you can do it on Facebook, too. Yeah. Direct message the page. Yeah. So, like, you know, if you just want a little bit more information or just, you know, at the end of the day, you're just going to be best if you just come, come, check out a, come check out what we're doing um, yeah. and meet us. And if you hate it, you never have to come back, but you probably won't because it's been really, really fun. Yeah, so absolutely. Far. <clears throat> well, um, we got right at an hour, so I think that's that's pretty good. Let's call that for our first one. Yeah, all right. We were all over the map on topics, <laughs> but it was fun. It was it was good to talk about. It's a definitely we've got we've covered some theater, some some education, some, some singing. But uh, yeah, thanks Robert for being honest. It you're was you're very welcome. It's been fun. <laughs>